All right. It looks like we are, let's see, we're broadcasting. We're live. Good. All right. So Larry Johnson, thank you for being on Radiant Creators again. Um, wanted to have uh, Larry Johnson on again because he's got really profound uh, geopolitical insight on many things, especially the Ukrainian situation and, uh, well, FTX as recently as happened also, which is kind of linked to the Ukraine situation in some ways. And it's a show that I've noticed keeps getting profound uh, views that we did several weeks ago, and uh, people are still watching it. So wanted to, I'm glad you came back on to uh, to catch up on the Ukrainian situation. Sure. Yeah. So it does look like, I think I saw an article this morning that uh, Lockheed Martin just confirmed, I think, like 200 plus, uh, a sale of like 200 plus HIMARS to Poland now that'll be there in like 2023. So that's that's an interesting development. I mean, our, uh, maybe that was the plan all along to get uh, some arms sold to Poland as part of the big picture. Well, this is, you know, think of the, you go to a dealer and say, I want to get Bronco. And they said, great, dude, give us your down payment and you can pick it up in November of 2023. Well, <laughs> what good does that do you now? Nothing, no, no good. Yeah. It doesn't do you any good in January or February. So the same thing for Poland. Now, this this is, let's call this a, a long-term corporate welfare program by the U.S. government. And, and by facilitating these sales to foreign governments, but the delivery is not going to happen for months and in some cases years, It's it doesn't change the, the strategic or tactical balance uh, on the battlefield right now or in the near term. Yeah. And if there was an actual threat to Poland from Russia, which I don't think there is, but besides the point, if there actually was a threat, uh, weapons that would arrive in 2023 really would, at that point, you'd just be, uh, you know, uh, selling them to a carpet bombed country at that point. So it, it's all pretty silly right. when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, um, if, Pol if Poland gets some fine, but uh, I don't think Ukraine will exist in its current form uh, by the end of 2023. It would be doubtful, especially with some of the uh, uh, crap talking that their leader's been doing recently. So, yeah, I'll just flow down some questions here because, you know, I want to get as much info as we can uh, while, we're, while we're here. So, you know, when it comes to very relevant issues of, of the day recently, we do have the, and it's alleged, I, I'm kind of curious about your stamp, your take on it is, the uh, 10 executed Russian soldiers that we've heard yeah. of recently. And do you think that that video is legitimate? I mean, I've seen it, but I, I myself don't know what to, what to make of it. Yeah, no, it, it's legit. And what makes it even more uh, valid is the fact that even the New York Times is confirming that it's legitimate. So when, when you convince a, 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 you know, a proven source of lies like the New York Times that they finally come around and embrace it, uh, you know that the evidence on it's pretty overwhelming. The, the Russian government, as I understand it, shared it first with the United Nations. And the United Nations is dragging its feet and not reacting to it. But finally, they've reacted. And I think part of the reason they're reacting now goes to the, uh, the, the fact that uh, international support for Ukraine is starting to subside. Uh, the, the, let's call it the, there are frays appearing in, in that rope that's binding Ukraine to the West. Uh, you, you've had a number of comments and criticisms directed at Ukraine for lying about them, uh, the, the missile they sent into Poland, trying to blame it on Russia and trying to really start World War III in earnest. Uh, they, they've come into criticism for that. They, they're now getting criticized as well for uh, carrying out executions that, uh, you know, this, this looks like something that ISIS was doing to captured soldiers uh, down in Syria or in other countries, or what the Germans did uh, to uh, partisans during World War II. You know, you line them up, shoot them in the back of the head. Um, so it's, you know, it's starting to resonate. And I, I think the support for Zelensky, it's uh, it, it starting to diminish. Yeah. And, and yeah, such murder does also make you think about uh, Bandera and his, you know, kind of what he did to the polls and such like anyone <clears throat> they could get their hands on that they didn't like. So it 
it seems like an extraordinary bad move and it's it's tragic it certainly shouldn't happen i think that it's a hard thing to sell anybody who was ever in the military especially because i mean uh surrender happens sometimes you get cut off and when you can't surrender uh if you know you're going to be killed that definitely changes the tone of the battle and definitely the the vengeance that you'll see on the battlefield i think that yeah. uh do you think this is going to make uh do you think this is going to make the uh, war right now begin to be more devastating towards the Ukrainian forces? I don't see many Russian soldiers having any uh, empathy if they did at all at this point. Um, it has well, the war is already brutal. Right? Yeah, the, the number of Ukrainians being killed is pretty substantial. Um, this this is the kind of thing where this is why you're supposed to have military order and discipline. To prevent people from acting on emotions, to leadership is supposed to help counter the emotional reaction and do things in, in a proper way. But uh, you know, I, it happened during World War II, where yes, when Japanese soldiers would feign uh, that they were dead or wounded, and then they'd pull out a hand grenade and blow up any Americans that came to to their aid. Uh, what happened is the U.S. Marines started killing them all. They stopped. They stopped taking prisoners. They just killed them because they weren't going to take that risk anymore. So that I mean that happens, and it, uh, it it does you know augur the possibility of making this conflict much more brutal than it already is. It's already extremely uh, bloody. Yeah, it's brutal as it is, and. Um... And when you see such things happen, I know that they can happen as a one-off. These things can happen outside of a command's, um, well, consent, of course. But uh, to do something so blatant in the open and to even video it uh, and ultimately make that video available to the world, um, it would seem to me at least that that reflects the leadership's will. I know that's a bit of a, a maybe a stretch, but that such things don't tend to happen under good leadership. They, they did before. The, the Ukrainians murdered people in Bucha, mm -hmm. staged the bodies, and then tried to blame it on the Russians as a Russian war crime. When all the available evidence showed that Russia had left the area uh, a couple of days before the Ukrainians came in and before those bodies appeared. So, you know, they've done it before. Candidly, they've been killing civilians without any repercussions for the last eight going on nine years yeah and the west has done little if anything to try to stop it or sanction them so i you know i guess you shouldn't be surprised that they would do something like this now because it's it's really been uh, a habit you once you're able to do it and get away with it you keep doing it yeah, and there was the videos that came out, gosh, what was it? Was it a year or was it months ago where you had the uh, Ukrainian troops, you know, shooting Russian POWs earlier, you know? Yeah, that was in March. Yeah, and so I think definitely that is a precedence that gets harder and harder to sell the world. And uh, it's, you know, something that did want to chat about also is that it does seem that, yeah, uh, we are seeing ukraine fatigue definitely in europe of course i think even more so than the us and of course ukraine fatigue here and the story gets harder to um to believe it's like you mentioned the new york times i think their actual exact words were like um uh, uh, russian state media has videos that have raised questions about ukrainian soldiers committing war crimes so uh, the new york times didn't want to take it really head on but they wanted they they were forced to touch on it and say well there's some alleged video that maybe possibly points to something and yeah right. for the new york for the new york times to come out and say that it's a big deal it means that ultimately damage control really can't be done as far as covering it up and denying it and then i think it was the international business times actually they hopped on that and said ukraine war crime new york time report beefs up russia charge that kiev executed executed 10 russian prisoners so um the new york new york times at least uh, saying it's alleged possibility has definitely affected the um, international, uh, I would say, media on the situation, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and yeah. I don't think that's what uh, you could say, I would call it like the collective West really once as far as narrative. So I think it's a big deal that that's, that's come to light and continues. So we'll see how that uh, plays out. Um, and then one other uh, topic is you have recent um, uh, 
post up on your site. It's uh, sonar21.com. Check it out, everybody, while you're listening. And uh, it's called, you know, for the love of God, someone tell Putin he's out of precision missiles. <laughs> and I, I think it's a great it, it, it's a great way to put it because, hey, somebody tell them they're, they're out of uh, uh, munitions and ammo and such. And to me, uh, that story that we've been hearing, gosh, it's going to be pretty much a year plus years. It's going to be quite a while we've been hearing it. It play out. And I think what was Tuesday their uh, heaviest, uh, uh, I guess, missile strikes on Ukraine. So do you think anybody's buying that narrative any longer? And uh, do you do you think Russia's anywhere near out of uh, stuff to shoot at Ukraine? Well, th this is what is so fascinating about that claim. Uh, I first heard it towards the end of March from a friend who's still in the intelligence community. Um, and uh, he had access to current intelligence, military intelligence. And he told me at the end of March that he says, what my bosses, you know, the senior commanders were hoping was that Russia was going to run out of missiles soon. They didn't know. They didn't have any solid intelligence. They had no idea exactly how much Russia had in its inventory. And so the intelligence community itself was predicating their assessments on hope, you know, belief, sort of, sort of like a, a religious experience. You know, oh, we hope, we believe it's going to be so. And then after that, the Ukrainians started feeding that story. So this is you know, the, the, the lies about the missile that landed in Poland is just, it's an extension of everything that's come out of Ukraine. Uh, they, they claimed, you remember the ghost of, uh, yes, uh, ghost of Kiev. Kiev. <laughs> yeah. You know, this wonder, wondrous fighter pilot who's shooting down right, Russian aircraft right and left. And it was a video game. Uh, you get the, the Bucha massacre where that, again, that is blamed, uh, on Russia. They had nothing to do with it. And then you've got the, the Ukrainians claiming that they're killing, you know, tens of thousands of Russians. And the Russians are suffering terrible losses when it's not true. Uh, or on top of that, then all oh, Russia's, they're out, they're at the end of the rope. They're, we got, they're retreating. There's chaos. Uh, uh, you know, the other, the, I guess the other story is like Vladimir Putin has cancer. No, no, no. Yeah. He's got Parkinson's disease. No, no. And I always say he's got heartbreak of psoriasis. You, you know, it's just. It, it, it's gotten to the point of just being utterly ridiculous. And so here, finally, uh, you had the Institute for the Study of War predicting like a day before the massive missile strike, you know, it's questionable if Russia has any more missiles to launch. And boom, here it comes, the largest ever. What, what this reflects is gross ignorance on the part of not just the public and the punditry in this country, but even our own intelligence community, a failure to appreciate the size of Russia's industrial base. Oftentimes, Russia has been, I guess, uh, dismissed as an inconsequential economic force in the world. It's just described as a gas station for the mm -hmm. wealthy countries. Um, that on, on top of it, uh, that they don't, they don't produce anything of any significance. And yet the people saying that are ignoring the fact that since, what was it, 2004, the United States has had to rely upon Russian rockets in order to carry our astronauts to the space station. Wow. Okay? The United States hasn't been able to produce, the U.S. government through NASA, has not produced a viable rocket for transporting personnel since uh, for 18 years. And, you know, we're now relying on Elon Musk and maybe Jeff Bezos of Amazon, you know, that they can produce uh, their ships. But so the, the fact that Russia can produce rocket engines that are the, the, the top of the class in the world for transporting people to outer space may mean that their economy is not some backwater leather shop, you know, where they're making purses and belts and uh, trying to sell those to tourists. Um, <laughs> it, and 
that we ignore the fact that during World War II, that Russia's industrial capability, despite being attacked and invaded, almost matched the United States. In fact, in the production of tanks from the period of uh, uh, January 1st, 1942, through the end of 1944, uh, Russia produced more tanks per month than the United States. Mm. Just, you know, think about that. So wow. uh, a country, they did not lose that, uh, that production capability. That's one of the things that has, that makes really Russia so viable in the modern world is it is really a self-sufficient country. It does not need uh, critical minerals or rare earth minerals from other countries in order to um, produce uh, advanced weaponry because it has it there at home. United States, however, is in absolute dismal shape, as is illustrated by, you know, going back to the point you made earlier about getting the high Mars to Poland. Oh, yeah, we'll get it to you in 2023. What happened with, hey, yeah, we get to produce and get it to you at the end of the month. Yeah. Remember during World War II, the United States was producing 146, 147 naval ships per month. Wow. Right now, it takes the United States five to seven years to produce just one aircraft carrier. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. So, you got to put all that together to understand that, um, yeah. you know, Russia is a, a much more formidable force and is able to produce these missiles, these high precision missiles, drones, and other things, because they've got factories going 24 7. And they have an educated workforce that can produce uh, the, the, the items. And they've got the, the materials that they need to produce it. Yeah. And that's the question that we hear from some of the you know articles that I see and uh, is, you know, where is Russia, you know, like it, it, they, they never approach the uh, reality that Russia could just be making munitions as they need them. Probably, of course, they have a stockpile, I'm sure, but that never really gets broached that they're just they're just making them. They don't have to buy them from anybody. They may be getting some from other countries, of course, and other sources, but they can make them. I mean, so that's something that I, it seems to get missed in the collective Western media. I think that Russia, well, not only do they got plenty, they can make it as they need it. And uh, yeah, five to seven years for an aircraft carrier. I could understand that for an aircraft carrier, just one of them. But even that, um, almost a little bit off topic, but you start wondering, are aircraft carriers a, a dated item anyway? You know, Well, they are. Yeah. It, so it, it is the equivalent for, for modern warfare with uh, with hypersonic missiles in the mix, um, it, it has, it's the same effect as what happened when the machine gun yes. was introduced in the First World War and what it did to horse cavalry. Because up to that point, horses were the way that you would transport troops. Uh, you know, having a cavalry gave you a mobile a unit uh, to, uh, to move quickly and to attack in force and concentrate in attack. Well, along comes the machine gun. Whoop! The horses were no longer, you know, they're not bulletproof. They're not bulletproof, and it reminds me of uh, of European armor. Uh, European, you know, body armor was profound. The way it had been, it was it it, it was amazing even to see it today. You look at some of the uh, craftsmanship and how they did it and how it articulated. I mean, these guys could wear some seriously heavy, you know, plate metal <laughs> all mm -hmm. over their body, and it was flexible and moved, and they could fight in it. Uh, but the musket, yeah, that's it. That <laughs> armor was over in a day. You know, all those, all, yeah. all those many, you know, centuries, generations of perfection. And well, one musket ball, and well, that was over. It wasn't worth. It wasn't worth the wait anymore. Yeah. yeah so what, what's happened now is with one of the the three legs of the U.S. defense strategy. So we got uh, you know the land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. We've got the air-launched um, cruise missiles and, and uh, again, the ballistic missiles that can carry nuclear uh, weaponry. And then we have the sea-launched. And the aircraft carriers are really our only way of projecting force overseas. You can't, we don't have a big enough plane to haul a regiment of soldiers. 
you're going to need several planes to haul a bunch of soldiers. So moving, putting soldiers on ships is, a, is the one way to move a large force. Aircraft carriers can provide, used to be able to provide some air cover for activities, but now with a hypersonic missile, they can reach out to, I, I understand, uh, 2,000 kilometers. Those ships can be sunk, and there's nothing on board the ships in terms of missile defense that can shoot down hypersonic missiles. So yeah. the, the, the United States has to be very, very, very careful these days about where it's going to place those ships. I, I'm, I'm really sort of a, you know, puzzled and bemused and shocked by the, the tough talk about Taiwan and how we're going to defend. How exactly are we going to do that? Because, you know, China again faces its own problem in trying to get troops to that island. But um, they, they have a much easier task than we do. Uh, if we're, um, you know, if we put any ship out there intending to land troops on Taiwan, they'd be blown out of the water by the Chinese. Yeah. Um, then, uh, you know, the other thing I heard was they were lamenting the fact that uh, we, we don't have artillery shells for our troops to operate in the Pacific theater. Excuse me? Just where are you going to deploy, uh, let's say, a 155 millimeter howitzer so it can fire on China? That means you're going to have to either land on China or put it on a floating barge that's going to then be blown up. So this, you know, we've got military capabilities that don't necessarily match the task uh, in front of them. And going back to the point earlier about production, you know, we're supposedly buying 100,000 uh, of the 155 millimeter rounds, howitzer rounds from South Korea to send to Ukraine because we can't produce enough here in this country. And it sounds like a lot, except uh, if the Ukrainians use it at the weight that the Russians fire ships, that's not even two days worth of uh, ammunition. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. And it's South Korea. That That's an interesting place to get your howitzer rounds from. I think I think the other ones to make PMC ammo, which anybody who shoots knows PMC, you know. Yes, yes. So, so yeah, I wonder if those uh, if those howitzer rounds come in a, in, a, in a big crate that says PMC on it. I want to picture that if, <laughs> if it exists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, I definitely want to see that. Well, so, and that's the thing I also wonder about when it comes to the uh, the uh, time of the fleet. You know, with the aircraft carrier in the middle, I'm not sure if uh, I do know during World War II or after. I mean, I remember reading about Russia. At least having the notion of, if not if not developing the nuclear torpedo, you know, and if that does exist out right. there, then, well, it's over, you know. Fleets in general become kind of obsolete. I think Russia, as my understanding, has deployed such a thing. Oh, you broke up for a second. They they have or they haven't? Yeah, they have. They have broke. Yeah. They have deployed uh, such a weapon. Yeah. So then, you know, once again, even more so, fleets become. Yeah, I like aircraft aircraft carriers. They're cool, but. Um, you, the West, or you say America, does have much less of an ability to project force when that is just great. Ultimately, a big target. It's all a matter of how do you take it out. You know, right? Yeah. Well, again, to, not to keep going back to World War II, but we got to have a benchmark, something to compare to. Because well, I recall, I think I, I don't know the precise time, but I, we were producing so many aircraft carriers. I think they could produce one every two or three months. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's really because you go back, we, we only had two or three at the start of the war. Well, when the war started, Yorktown was sunk. I think there were only two or three. And by the end of the war, I think there was something like 30. Mm. You know, the uh, it, it was a, how do you don't just, you know, pop them out of thin air. The fact oh, yeah. that the United States, you got it because when you're building these ships, think about it. You've got to have a reliable supply of steel. And you've got to have all the tooled, the machine tooled uh, screws and bolts and uh, wiring. And I just, you know, there, there's so many different uh, products that go into that ship. And you have to have a supply system that can produce and deliver. Oh, yeah. Now, and 
Yeah. And you need like a battalion of plumbers and electricians <laughs> alone to get one of those right. things done. So, yeah, I right. mean, it's quite a lot. And it's just copper wire. There you go. I mean, a remarkable amount. So, um, well, that article you wrote, of course, you know, for the love of God, someone tell Putin he's out of precision missiles, which people can check out over at, you know, sonar21.com. But it does seem one of the things that I've been realizing in this conflict that uh, uh, something America does, and like, I like the F-35, sure, it's cool. And maybe if it actually can do all things, you know, it's an A-10 and an F-18, right? If it's all these things, if it actually can do all of that, maybe the money spent will ultimately have been worth it. But so far, it seems like it, uh, you know, breaks a lot. Where um, Russia, on the other hand, you know, after World War II, they began working on air defense systems because I think they realized that America had quite, they had seen we had quite the Air Force. So they went, well, we can't match that right away, but let's work on air defenses. And that's something it seems like, you know, has America, it seems like when you look at uh, Russia and you look at America, our, the way we viewed the defense industry, you might say, or defending the country is very different where it seems like America is like, let's spend a lot of money and make an F-35 where Russia is like, let's retroactively fix a bunch of uh, the models of MiGs to land on dirt roads and well, stuff like that. So, so it's practical versus just a huge expenditure. Well, it's the, the here's the fundamental difference between Russia and the United States. The United States procurement, the process for uh, uh, designing and buying weapons and deploying weapons, is subject entirely to politics. Yes, it's not it's not predicated on a national security strategy. In other words, there's not a there's not a written out defined doctrine that's guiding what we're doing instead uh oftentimes it, it's you get the people uh members of congress who will contribute money to make sure that money goes to lockheed martin because lockheed martin is contributing money to them uh, and so the, the the or the lobbying firms that get hired by lockheed martin or by raytheon or uh, uh that they then go to the hill and they get the member, certain members of Congress to back certain legislation, and they get that in exchange for money. It's really a form of legalized bribery. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's on the U.S. side. Whereas on the Russian side, what's going on is they actually have a plan, and they're designing weaponry that is designed that is set to defend Mother Russia. It is designed to. Uh, resist both missile and aerial attacks as well as ground force attacks and that you know that that is part of the reason why russia's annual defense budget is i believe less than 80 million dollars wow whereas the united states is approaching 800 billion yeah. so between 80 billion and 800 billion it's, it's unbelievable and so the and the and the reason the it's so expensive in the United States is there are so many middle middle men and middle women who you know get get their palms greased as the procurement process goes forward. Uh, so it is you know a complete disconnect. And add to this, when uh, George W. Bush withdrew uh, in two thousand one from the anti ballistic missile defense treaty on the pretext that, oh, we wanted the United States to be free to develop its missile defense system. Uh, then along comes 9-11, they get distracted, and the United States has devoted its time to fighting the war against terrorism. Uh, the Russians went and moved immediately to developing uh, anti-ballistic missile defense systems, both against aircraft and against missiles. I mean, candidly, if it can shoot down a hypersonic missile, it sure as hell could shoot down a jet. Oh yeah. The only difference, the only difference is you got a pilot in one and not in the other. Yeah. And uh, that's true. So I mean, it does seem like it's a a very good strategy there. And the uh, I was going to mention the lawnmower drones that we're hearing so much about, you know, recently. Um, I think it, it's an interesting history of how they were developed. I think what was it like? I forget what country developed it first and another country captured one then developed it further, but interesting history on the lawnmower drone. But one of the things about that 
And I found very impressive. Now, this is something I, I heard. I mean, to me, it said I, I haven't confirmed it, but that the lawnmower drone, of course, it's not very big and it moves slow. And I guess it's signature that, that the radar can see. And because it's very quiet, it has a gas engine. I think some of the original ones uh, weren't propped. They had a jet engine. Well, when you and I saw some videos of a bunch of these things over you know, Ukrainian cities, you know, coming in for a landing and uh, um. It sounds like a bunch of RC. It sounds like a bunch of flying lawnmowers, you know. And so, I guess that they trick the what uh, missile defense systems they have, if any, at this point. It just looks like birds. I guess I, I guess they design those to mock the speed of birds flying in in a uh, a flock. And so, all they they can't detect. I mean, that that's like that's that's low tech genius. Yeah, I mean, there's. Um... There are a variety of technologies that can be used for air defense, and this is why what the Russian the Russians have an actual integrated system, and by integrated it means you've got got the missiles on the ground that are going to be fired at an incoming target, that is in tied in in communication with satellite systems, with aerial platforms that are collecting other information. That information is being downloaded to uh, one site and then distributed so that they you can actually know if you're going to target something by its heat signature or if you're going to target something with let's call it gps coordinates because you've been able to locate identify it and track its movement um, that the united states does not have a system like that we don't we don't have a fully integrated air defense system comparable to what Russia has. So it is, we're immediately at a disadvantage. Um, mm. The United States believes that it would, uh, its stealth aircraft would be able to allow uh, U.S. planes to penetrate Russian airspace, bomb critical locations, and disable uh, the Russian military or Russian defense system. Uh, I think that is a crazy bet. Uh, the reality is that uh, Russia, I think, will easily handle anything, any of our stealth aircraft, whether it's you know B-2 bomber or F-35, you know, whatever you're flying, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pick it up. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, how many missions can they actually successfully make without you know, major maintenance anyhow if you do, i don't know how many we have but how many sorties could they do before they're down for the count anyway something's going to hit it um well along with that it reminds me of when i was in the and this leads on to something else this kind of next topic um when i was in the military i one of my collateral duties was uh, uh land navigation so mm -hmm. one of the things i one of the things i did was in the uh, when i was on duty when I was sitting in Saudi Arabia, was uh, I sit in front of the big map that we have there? I knew where our camp was, and uh, when the scuds were fired, um, the AWACS plane would see it and broadcast its uh, coordinates <clears throat> and the azimuth that was flying, and then we'd know if we cared or not. And uh, something that gets me is there's a uh, it's something that actually that the Duran mentioned this morning, uh, an article from Newsweek: uh, Americans are running out of patience with Biden's uh, approach to Putin's war but also the whole Ukraine fatigue. But this land, this kind of leads into the missiles that went into Poland. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things is if you look at, if you look at the map, they're, they're kind of two different directions. Why would Ukraine be defending itself from Russian missiles over Poland? Doesn't quite make sense. But also if like, I take it that those are Ukrainian missiles that were shot that direction. But even if somehow there was an error from what I understood um, when I was in the military, uh, watching, we used to watch the Patriots go after the scuds over our heads. We could see it in the distance, you know. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, sometimes they would miss. Sometimes they would just hit and like knock the scud off course, which was a beautiful pain in the ass, you know. Um, but because uh, we knew where it was going, now we don't. Um, but the thing is, uh, if the Ukraine by accident fired those into Poland, I understood that we could, at least in the Patriot days, we could disable it in flight. You could say it's not going where we wanted it to. We, we could abort it and turn it off, and it's just this big piece of metal that lands. I mean, couldn't those missiles have been uh, deactivated if they realized they fired them in the wrong direction? I think. I'm I, I, no, I don't think. I think they were old enough 
Uh, they were so old that they did not have that technology capability. Gotcha. The thing, I, you know, I know many continue to say it was just an accident. Horseshit. I, yeah. That was not an accident at all. And the reason I, 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 I say that is, number one, uh, and, I, and I've talked to some, you know, some of the explanation out of the U.S. Intel is that you had uh, an, a SAM battery, a surface-to-air missile battery, with the SS-300 on it, the SS-300 system, to the uh, east of Lviv. So it, that's where the battery is set up. And then there are only th three possible directions that an incoming rocket, you know, missile from Russia would be fired, from the south, mm -hmm. from the north, from Belarus, which uh, there's no evidence they're firing from Belarus, or from the east. So it was, I, we're told that what the U.S. government, what you believe, is that the tr the missile's coming like this, and then the SAM battery shoots it from behind, you know, lets it get oh. past it, and then shoots at it and misses. Uh, that is, you know, again, you want to see it coming at you. You don't want to wait till it gets past you. That's number one. Number two, they were out so quickly, both Kiev yes. and Warsaw, and condemning this as a Russian strike, and by God, we need to enact uh, Article 5. I mean, that was a week ago today that this was going on, uh, or a week ago tomorrow, uh, that um, it just, uh, you know, please. They, they were so quick off the trigger that, to me, that says that was designed because if, if they shot the missile in the air and did not know where it went, then then we'll probably going to have some, you know, it's going to probably come telling them, uh, you know, this is where this missile landed, plus every day you did it. The other thing is the United States and Russia with our satellite systems, they've got satellites specifically dedicated to detecting launches of this kind of missile. Because you never know if it's a ICBM headed towards you or not. So, you know, U.S. and Russia were both tracking this early on. Mm. Uh, could know, you know where it was fired from, who fired it, and was there any other miscarrying trajectory that would have been possibly in line to, to that they could have been trying to shoot down. Then the timing of it with the G20 summit to, to get this happening as the G20 uh, was uh, meeting. And it coincided also with the release from uh, the uh, International Tribunal at The Hague accusing Russia of shooting down uh, um, an airliner uh, eight years ago. So when you put all that together, I, I think this was a deliberate psyop. And the fact that Ukraine continues to insist yes. that it, it's Russian, it's Russian, and everyone else is going, no, it's not. Uh, and so th they've undermined their credibility. Not, I don't understand why they could be considered having had credibility in the first place. But Yeah, and that's the thing that gets me is you'll still have Zelensky out there saying, well, we, we don't know, you know, like whose missiles they are because they won't let us see them, but they're Russian or something like that. Ridiculous statements for a leader to be making. And that's what I think we might be seeing where even Newsweek has to admit it, um, Ukraine fatigue, because it can take a while for people to kind of get with something. I get it. But uh, I think we might look in the history books in the future one day and find that this is in, in, in this conflict, this is one you know, thing that we'll read that, you know, a Ukrainian farmer stopped World War III because he took pictures and posted yeah. them. Because what if that hadn't happened? And now this is, you know, somewhat high octane speculation, but they were fired near fertilizer plant, which would have made a big mess. So were they actually trying to hit that and did not, that would have changed things. You, you wouldn't have right. known, you wouldn't have known what missiles those were right away. Um, if, if at all possible, you know, you, you wouldn't have known fast enough. So it's really something. And to me, uh, the idea of it being an accident, well, I don't know. I mean, I was in the military, so I look at it. You don't just fire missiles by accident in the military. Someone's going to, it doesn't happen. People don't, no. that's, 
no, it doesn't happen. Uh, there, there's, I'm, I don't know what the Ukrainian military is like, but I'm sure there's enough discipline where no one's going to fire missiles off towards Poland by accident. It's just, I can't see it. It's got to be via orders. You know, you're not going to sure. do that kind of thing by chance. And so, um, along with that, you've got. This is where a lot of the uh, Ukraine fatigue, I think, is happening. And this, I think, is is a good thing to see. And like you mentioned, um, the Ukraine, Zelensky losing credibility. And actually, as we see beginning to slide into the media, uh, the mainstream media, I would say is, is this guy dangerous? Is he leading the, war toward, the, the, the world towards you know war with uh, saying things that are untrue? And uh, I'm not sure if it was true, but supposedly, I think it was just, you know, uh, posturing, but supposedly on a conference call, Biden, Biden, uh, President Biden saying, you know, be more appreciative or something like that. And I'm not sure if he really said that or not, but at least it shows that they, that they're beginning to have to show a positioning that is not uh, completely positive, you know, here in the collective West. So along with that, you've got, and this is, something that I'm wondering about is, so of course you have FTX and you've blogged about that. You've done some great posts on that, but that definitely was a money laundering. I mean, there's so much coming out by the hour. I stopped even following it. I'm going to check back on it in a bit because there's just too much coming out to even follow it right now. But, right. but we do know that that definitely was a massive money laundering machine. And how do you think that actually coming to an end, which it, which it has rather quickly, um, do you, how do you think that affects the Ukraine fatigue? I think that's actually a huge blow to the war itself because, you know, when people are in trouble, they tend to want to cover their tracks and be quiet. Well, it, it, it actually, it's several things. So let's let's yes. be precise about the yes. term money laundering. Yeah, because uh, I've I've spent my you know my company we spent twenty four years investigating and doing money laundering cases. If money laundering constitutes an act of uh, where you've got cash that has been derived from an illegal activity, mm. whether it's uh, child trafficking, prostitution, drugs, illegal narcotics, uh, arms trafficking. So there's some there's a predicate crime that generates a, a financial flow from that, then that you're trying to hide the origin of those proceeds. In this case with FTX, Yes, there was some money laundering involved because I'm, I'm given to understand that FTX was being used in part to move financial assets that came from the sale of fentanyl and wow. some other narcotics. But what you've also got going on is fraud and the the effort to raise money um, in the to, to get money to the Democrat Party by getting funds that are raised ostensibly for Ukraine. And then that money goes into uh, the, the you know, purchase with cryptocurrency at FTX. And then cryptocurrency, the FTX people ostensibly turn around and donate that, get to convert it into fiat cash, you know, regular dollars and euros, and then give that uh, to Zelensky. But within that, they were then turning around and giving money back to the Democrats and to the yeah. public as well. I mean, Mitch McConnell $25 million. They got to, add to his pack. They got to ask, what world relationship does he have with Samuel Bankman Fried uh, to deserve getting $2.5 million? Now, maybe from McConnell's standpoint, that's, you know, chicken feed. It doesn't really amount to much, but it was a you know it was a significant donation. So it's one way to you know if you will to get the quid pro quo of saying uh, appropriate dollars to go to Ukraine, appropriate money that's going to purchase weapons that will go to Ukraine, and then we'll in turn the Ukrainians will send money back to the United States. It's almost like you're appropriating money for yourself, but it's going through a cutout. Now that. That could constitute violations of the Corrupt Practices Act, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, among other things. So there is, it is a, this entire a significant portion of this operation was set up in such a way to obscure where the money was coming from and where it was going. And within that, you have intermingling of funds, some from criminal activities, 
some from legitimate activities, some diverted from uh, where it was supposed to go. And so it's, it's, it's a mess, as put it simply. It certainly is. And it's, and it, it does explain, well, actually, you know, I do wonder how that will, I think the FTX situation will still continue to unravel and we'll see uh, a lot of damage done from it. I do think it's like 130 companies have gone bankrupt. I heard it was one number for, because, or, or they were affected financially by it. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it just unravels and unravels and unravels. And uh, especially, I think that they kind of, it's the wrong crew to have screwed over, you might say, because the crypto community are pretty shrewd, pretty smart people. And you've got a lot of blockchain, you know, blockchain analysis that can be done. And so uh, I'm not sure how you can track US dollars. That's not my thing. But I do know in crypto, none of it's anonymous. So in a sense, I think they're going to nail every single person who, who saw, if you were involved in a crypto transaction or if it was involved in the money movement, you're screwed. They're going to have an arrow pointing straight to and from. Yeah, yeah, because that's what a, a lot of the people I think, particularly the politicians that got ensnared in this whole thing, were told it would they would be anonymous. Yeah, nope. And <laughs> and trust and trusted that. Well, uh, and and now they're they're going to discover. Whoops! Not only is it not anonymous, it is more easily traceable than trying to tra track. Say you've got a a suitcase load of a uh, hundred dollar bills. Mm -hmm. Well. You know, unless you have marked them in, in advance, you, you get a tough time proving that money, you know, get fall that money. It's not an electronic transaction, it's a transaction. Yeah. And so I think that it's it's really something how we've heard so much about, uh, you know, crypto needing to be regulated because it's, you know, it, it can be used for all these terrible things. And then, well, who did it, right? <laughs> In a big way. I don't think there's any scammer yeah. bigger than this, that than FTX, as far as using cryptocurrency explicitly to do something nefarious, you know, that I know of at least. Um, uh, and so it kind of explains, that's one of the things that, so all the, uh, conservatives who pushed for, you know, Ukrainian aid, well, you, you, you bet again, you, you hedged the bets against yourself, you know, you were funding the other side. And that definitely explains how, when it looked like the house and Senate might go to the red side of the house, the Republicans, there was that last ditch push. We need to get more aid because the political, because our ability to send it may change if the house and the Senate flip. You know, it definitely exp explains that last ditch effort, which I don't think they quite pulled off. So I do think that the FTX situation may affect the, the war in Ukraine only in that it may have exposed too much and begin to slow the machine down some. Well, I think that's already started. Um, there is, um, I think there's a decided shift in the tone of the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine compared to prior to the election. So once it was clear that the Republicans are going to take control of the House of Representatives, uh, the easy um, ability to go up to the Hill and get them to rubber stamp more money for Ukraine, those days are over. Um, there, and as, more, as the economic problems in the United States grow more uh, severe, um, that is a lot of it's hidden right now. I just I give you one quick example. In Florida, uh, I got you got a, a notice that oh boy, the uh, uh, you know we're back up. The demand for real estate's going up, but then you can dig down into the numbers. Uh, the inventory now is out to almost three months. It used to be there was no inventory. You know, a year ago this time there was no inventory. It was just people were buying houses up before they could even be put on the market. Now they're staying on market for at least three months. That's a big change. So that's a sign that the economy is slowing because the ability to purchase these houses uh, is or it's, it's being drawn out longer. Um, you've, you're seeing this already in Europe. Oh. You know, they announced in the UK that they are in recession and that you know people are going to be losing jobs. And, and all of this comes in the face of rising prices. So you're losing jobs, no income, and paying higher prices. That is a deadly mix. Uh, I've seen it before in places like Argentina in 1984. 
uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a nightmare scenario, just really devastates the society. And you've got thousands taking to the streets today, I think, in Greece and Athens. Uh, it, lo- it looked to be uh, 10, 15,000 people marching uh, in protest. So yeah. you're going you're gonna to face growing domestic opposition across Europe to continue to send money and, and, and military aid to Ukraine while their own economies are being devastated. Yeah, I think that Thanksgiving might be an interesting time here in the country, here in the U.S., because uh, people are aware that inflation is quite extreme by the gas prices, by food prices. And, uh, and when everybody's getting together this, uh, this holiday season, I'm sure one of the things people will be talking about is, man, this is really expensive. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it, it cost me like, you know, 30 bucks <clears throat> to drive here. <laughs> and now everything and it's insane. Well, also, you talk about the protests. Um, you know, Brazil, for instance, they're definitely not taking uh, their elections uh, lying down. Those protests are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They don't seem to want to have a, uh, you know, a uh, their leader dictated by, a, you know, uh, American election standards. <laughs> well, seems. yeah, well, I mean, we're good Lord. We've become a, a complete joke. Um, yeah. The split, the split that's down in Brazil between the Bolsonaro and the yeah. Lula followers is very uh, reminiscent of the split here in the United States. We've got, we've actually got a split between, let's call it Republicans and Democrats. And then we have uh, uh, another split between the establishment Republicans and the populace that yeah. follow Trump. And uh, this is a recipe for chaos. We're, we're already seeing the diesel prices going up, diesel shortages going up. And now the railroad uh, likelihood of a railroad strike with further supply chain disruption. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty picture for the U.S. economy. And uh, we, we certainly don't have any kind of political leadership in Washington, at least in the White House, capable of dealing with it. So it's, it's going to be um, the ability to sustain support for Ukraine, I believe, is going to become more difficult with each passing week. Yeah, and I definitely hope that it does. And I think that uh, hopefully people are learning that the, the deeper reasons for us being there, you know, I always, whenever I, you know, it comes up in conversation, I always recommend people go watch uh, Ukraine on Fire. There's a good place to start. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. just just start there. And that's all true, you know, and uh, um, just take it from there. And I think even even that knowledge of, hey, all the people that were involved in that, they're in power again. You know, and look what's happening. So yeah, the yes, the, that that rabbit hole goes on forever. But even if a person just starts there, it's gonna, it should, if they have any critical thinking skills, make them realize that what's going on is not in the country's best interest. Right. Yeah. No. So uh, this is uh, this is devastating. The the you got to wonder how Ukraine itself can survive. I mean, right now they're on life support without the steady flow of billions of dollars a month from the West, United States and Europe, the, the, the government has no way to fund itself. Yeah. They don't, they can't uh, operate a factory really of any consequence in Ukraine now because it's all vulnerable uh, to Russian missile strikes. Uh, so the, the, the tax base is basically gone. Uh, some of the key resource areas that made uh, you know, Ukraine potentially one of the richest countries in the world in terms of um, mineral resources and grains and other things and fuels. Those are gone. Those are outside of. Those are now controlled by Russia. So this is uh, and and they're and they're in the, in the early grips of winter. It's it's going to be ugly. Yeah, and the, the occasional uh, in the in the Western media, you will see occasionally. Oh well, it's winter. There'll be a break. It's like no, Russians love the winter. Are you kidding? They're gonna. <laughs> it's, it's, no, they it's not going to stop. They're not going to yeah, stop. It's, it's not going to slow them down one bit. In fact, I mean, winter is oftentimes easier. Of course, as we know, it's easier to travel. For one thing, you can cross the river because it's frozen. You know, yeah. care if there's a bridge there or not. So yeah. you know, people don't always realize that to our our ancestors, our pioneering ancestors, winter often meant the ability to travel places you could not before and easier, even though it was cold. Um, so we've been talking for a little while. I don't want to keep you, don't want to keep you more than an hour. You know, um, I'm sure you got, I've got, a, I've got another appointment at two fifteen here. So. Perfect. So I'll just, uh, finish up with, with, uh, 
I wanted to touch on what happens after I know I'm I know I'm projecting it here a little bit, but what happens after Russia wins the war or as we continue this conflict? Because already we saw um, Italian police bust Azov tied Nazi cell planning terror attack. You know, um, it was a pretty well written story. I saw that. And so um, I do wonder do, something that I sort of fear, but I, I think I have to kind of take as a possibility. Will we see, since we are dealing with ideological Nazis to a, a certain extent, there's definitely that. Are we going to see attacks on you know European countries that aren't supporting Ukraine? Yes. No. I think I think that's definitely a possibility. I mean, the amount of let's call it loose weaponry that's out there on the yes. black market is significant and it's uh, very deadly. So um, I, the, the the ideal solution here is that uh, Ukraine's going to run out of gas, literally. And, and figuratively and metaphorically. And then we'll negotiate a settlement with Russia that they will cede the uh, territory, cede Odessa, uh, and recognize that uh, Crimea is Russia's, uh, and then uh, that they're going to swear off any continued ties uh, to the West. I, I frankly don't, you know, it would be the idea but I think they're going to be very hard pressed to do that. This is the, the level of corruption here is such that you've got, you know, politicians bought and paid for and very close economic ties. You know, it's not just the Bidens. Uh, it's John Kerry's family, Ron's family, Nancy Pelosi and her family. I've got all the uh, political elite in Washington. Uh, that uh, are, have uh, financial interests in Ukraine. Yeah. So, uh, what's what is going to uh, a Russian victory? I think will make you know start the unraveling of NATO, because up to this point, the only way NATO could maintain military force was by adding new countries, because they were not they weren't going to build up a new army in 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 the UK and a a bigger army in Finland and in Norway and Germany. They, so the way they did it is they added countries. And with each new country came a new military unit to add to their, quote, the force strength. Um, it was, you know, it was a foolish idea in the beginning. Uh, it's not very practical uh, in terms of actually being able to organize and deploy that force and use it in any coherent fashion because of the differences in language and the differences mm. in culture, even though they tried to standardize it. All it was was just an excuse. Uh, you know, part of this emptying, emptying out uh, countries like Hungary and Croatia and uh, Romania, getting rid of their Soviet-era weaponry, sending it to Ukraine so it gets chewed up in war. Those countries now have to turn around and buy NATO-approved equipment which is manufactured largely by the United States. And so, again, it's just another boondoggle for the U.S. military industrial uh, corporations. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it always seemed like NATO was kind of dated. Like once Russia fell apart, uh, it seemed like, and the Warsaw Pact fell apart, I could see keeping NATO around for a decade. But um, Longarn is the, NATO, is the uh, Russia of Stalin and such. So it always seemed like it was a bit of a of a thing that would eventually lead to ruin anyway, if nothing else, financial ruin. Right. And uh, I mean, as uh, I'll let you go, cause it's been great talking to you, but one thing, one last slight question I'd ask, this is kind of high octane speculation, but I do think that could this, could this situation sort of be summarized in a way that it's, it's not just happening. It's that we are moving into a unipolar world, especially with currencies and such and, and, uh, and commodities. And this has already happened. It's already kind of done. So it is really the rise of the BRIC nations. And yes. it seems like this is simply, I oftentimes think that you had some people sitting around the room with the cigars and vodka and whiskey and such. And they decided that it was time for the better of the BRICs, just for the changing world that NATO be taken out. And that's what this has always been about anyway. And it's kind of a right. certainty. It yeah, seems just, like it to me. In, in the same way that dropping the bomb on Hiroshima on August 8th, 1945, ended World War II with respect to Japan, but the actual signing ceremony didn't take place 
till two or three weeks later. Yeah. That have formally ended. I think when history is written, they will point to the rush to be start of the Russian special military operation on February 24th of 2022 as the beginning of the end of uh, U.S. dominance in the, in the international community, the end, the end of U.S. supremacy. Uh, it is now going to be a multipolar world that the United States will have far less control over. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a reality that is going to be slow and coming, coming upon us, but we're going to have to come to grips with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it all rolls out smoothly, and I hope it does, then, well, it'll be a better world when this is all over and all the suffering sure. will have at least led to something, you know, good. Well, um, Larry Johnson, uh, check out sonar21.com. Uh, it's all of his stuff is there. And um, I will get this posted over to uh, Rumble. We ha we, we've had trouble live streaming there, so this is only live streaming on YouTube, but I will put it on Rumble and I'll send you that link. Um, and uh, it's been great talking to you so much. Thank you so much for being on again. This Always is enjoy great, it, Craig. Great, great enlightenment. So thank you so much. All right, bye. We'll still talk. All right, bye bye. Take care. You too.